Well, let's take a look at the fall of man briefly. And we will introduce it from Genesis chapter 3. So long as we can get the technology to help us out. There it is. All right. So this one is titled The Fall of Man, Spiritual Death. And we will remind ourselves first that man was designed by God to possess three parts. We just went through review on this, so this should be right fresh in your brain. Body, soul, and human spirit. And that each of those were designed to function and carry out a specific task, which ultimately glorified God. We identified if any part of that form is missing, then the entire person or object is incapable of carrying out its designated intended function on the whole. You can carry out two-thirds of it, but not three-thirds of it. Therefore, you're missing the whole part. If a part of the former is missing, then a part of the function is missing, affecting the overall ability of the person or object to carry out the objective for which it was designed and crafted. Now, we move into Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. What we'll do is we'll read through verse 10 uh, just continuously. Then you can see the words in bold already. We'll come back to those. We'll look at the words in bold, identify them, and go as far as time will allow, but we probably will get through the whole thing, I would imagine, that tonight. We'll see. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Verses 4 to 6. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Genesis 3, 7-9. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? Verses 10 and 11. The man replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, this is the Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? As far as we'll take it at this point, we want to focus on the fall of man. There's consequences to the fall. Uh, uh, seemingly eternal consequences and potentially eternal consequences to the fall, depending on upon whether or not people accept Christ as their Savior. Let's go ahead and take a look back at verses 1 to 3 and take a look at the words in bold. We start with the word serpent, and this does indeed mean snake or dragon. We have a reference from this passage, there's a couple of them in the New Testament. Well, one of them is Revelation 12, 9 and following. We'll look at 12, 9 real quickly. In Revelation 12, 9 it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, 
the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So our reference here is identifying, and what we're trying to correlate is that the serpent of old is the same serpent who is in the garden, and the serpent is the same as Satan. So we are going to refer to him as the serpent or Satan, which means accuser, or the devil. So you have an accuser and you have the devil, and one of them refers to a person who makes accusations, Satanos. The other one is from the Greek word diabolos, and that refers to a prosecuting attorney who goes before and makes claims. So you've got those two ideas there. So the serpent here is not just a, an ordinary snake. It is uh, Satan or the devil. Now we get to the word was. Seemingly innocent word, but in Hebrew there's a lot of potential with this word. In Hebrew you have two types of narratives basically. You have what's called a sequential narrative, which identifies steps in a process. First, second, third, or if you're narrating or giving a story, it's first we went down to the store, and then we went inside the store, and after that we got our shopping cart, and we walked through the store, all the different aisles, we picked the things we wanted, and then the next thing we did was go to the checkout. That's a narrative, step by step by step by step, sequential. First, then second, then third. The second basic type of narrative is a disjunctive. You could probably think of this easily as non-sequential, but the disjunctive means that, that there is a break in the sequence. And so you have the same story of, we went to the store, and then we got ice cream. There's a lot of steps that still went in between there. Now, I should have clarified. We went to the store, and then we went to the Dairy Queen to get ice cream to show the distinction or the, the disjoinder in that process. So there's there's the sequence, the one, two, three, four, five, six, that you list out the story in order. And then there's the story that starts, then a new sequence that starts, or a different sequence that starts. Now you can tell whether it is, let me write this down real quick so I don't switch it around in my head. Whether it's sequential or disjunctive based upon the syntax, well, the way the words are arranged in the Hebrew. Now the English is going to be different because they put them in different places to carry out a better English mindset. But with a sequential construction you have the definite article, then the verb, and then the noun. So it's article, verb, noun. With the disjunctive constru constru construction you have the article, noun, and then verb. What we have here is the article, noun, verb in the Hebrew, this disjunctive. Now what we also have is the active, so this part here, the now, should be then, and the disjunctive interacts with the state of being verb to identify through the active voice or active aspect of the Hebrew that the serpent became. What it shows is that there was an original state and then a new state that transitioned. And so you have the serpent, so we're moving on to the next story, part of the story from Genesis 2, uh, into Genesis 2, where God puts together the, everything, has man taking care of responsibilities, and then we go to a new story. That's the disjunctive idea. Now the serpent, Satan, became with the active state of being of the Hebrew word for was.
Satan became more crafty than any beast of the field. Now, the word for crafty is a room, and it identifies either prudence or shrewdness. Prudence is the reflexive ability to apply wisdom in your circumstance. So a prudent individual is faced with a circumstance and reflexively, out of reflex, puts into effect the proper wisdom to go through that circumstance properly. That is a prudent individual. Now, shrewdness is the same idea, but on a negative connotation. So prudence, this is a, a positive connotation. Shrewdness is a negative. So this would be where a person reflexively puts wisdom into action in a circumstance to produce a negative result. We have to look at context to identify whether it's prudence or shrewdness from the, Greek or the Hebrew word avrum. Contextually, we have a negative action. We have the serpent being shrewd in his deception of the woman in the garden. And so we identify this as shrewdness. He is reflexively applying wisdom. So he has knowledge and understanding of the woman and the man and the fruit and probably a lot of other things as well. But he has that knowledge and he reflexively uses all that knowledge together to create the deception and to continue to deceive Eve or, excuse me, the woman in the process. So we've got shrewdness, the reflexive ability to apply wisdom in one's circumstances. Now we have the serpent, Satan, who becomes more craftier, more shrewd, more able in his reflexive use of wisdom to manipulate his circumstances and navigate his circumstances in a negative way. And says he's more shrewd than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Let's take a look at this word Lord real quickly here. Sure, I'm not jumping ahead of a slide or something. Okay. The word Lord here is the Hebrew word Yahweh. We identify this as the personal name of God. And God is Elohim still, so this is the three in one. Being, who I refer to as the Godhead. So if I use the term Godhead, I'm talking about the three-in-one aspect rather than the one of the three. Elohim and Godhead, for, for my usage, are simultaneous to refer to the three-in-one aspect of God. Yahweh refers to the personal name of God, the three-in-one, but there's always a representative, a representation of the Godhead by one of them. And this is predominantly, if not exclusively, the Son. So the reference 
is to the entirety of the Godhead as represented by one of the three. And it's predominantly, if not exclusively, the Son who makes that representation. So we're talking about the Son of God who is being focused on as the representative agent of the three-in-one being who made the animals, including the serpent, who is Satan. So Yahweh is not a reference to the Son. It's a reference to the personal name of God. But it's referring to the Godhead as it's represented, excuse me, as it's represented by one of them, and again, that's almost exclusively, if not exclusively, the Son. The only reason I say if not exclusively is because I'm sure I've not looked at every single usage. It's very possible that there is that representation made in a different place, in different way and aspect by the Holy Spirit, or by the Father, or by a burning bush. Similar idea. The, it's not without the Father, though, either. And especially, like, we'll get to in verse... 10, the father is the main, I'll call it leader, I guess, or head of the Godhead, so he has that emphasis there too, but when we look at the interaction between man and the Godhead, it's almost always the son, so it's not exclusive of the father, exclusive of the Holy Spirit, because it's man's interactions with the son, predominantly, but, so it does include that aspect of it, and because it's hard to look at it in the Hebrew, because the interaction dictates Say that one again. Whether it's emphasizing the Father, Son, or Spirit. Right. Yes. Right. Of authority? <laughs> I know. I know what you're getting at, I think. It's face to face, kind of an yeah. idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So yeah, each each aspect is included in this, but for especially in our purpose here, the sun will be the focus as he walks with the Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, so in that regard, yes, and you can definitely tell by the role which one's referring to in its interaction with humanity. Uh, it would appear that the much of the interaction with Moses was mainly directed by the Father, and the Father is the, the director of the Godhead. But it appears when you look at it that the Father is the focus there, and the Son has a role in some capacity as well. So context dictates. Right. And God speaks, and with the words come into existence all of creation. The Lord... God made reference to the Godhead directed by the Father, carried out by the Son with the power of the Spirit. It's an amazing, I don't want to call it system because it's not a system, it's amazing glory, I guess we'll call it, for lack of a better term. The word made comes from the Hebrew word say or eseh, and it identifies the manufacturing of something out of existing materials. So last week we looked at the words word yatsar, which means to form something out of existing materials. Took the dust of the ground and formed the body. This is to manufacture something out of existing materials. 
And this would be if you went down to the store, like Lowe's or Home Depot, bought a bunch of wood and built your dog a new dog kennel. You've manufactured it with screws and a bunch of different things that already existed. Where are we at? All right. Made here, manufacture out of existing materials. And then we get, and he says to the woman, the serpent says to the woman, indeed has God said, surprised I have God there. Okay, that's why I have God there. This is Elohim. So here we have a singular representation of the Godhead being referenced, that the Lord God had manufactured the beast of the field, including the serpent, out of existing material. And now down here, we have Elohim referred to again. Indeed, has Elohim, the Godhead said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the, tree of the garden, from the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the, tree, from the fruit of the tree of which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Woman here, I have a tendency to call her Eve, but not yet. <laughs> She's not Eve yet. She will become Eve. She's not there yet. This word, Isha, refers to biologically female. Yes. One of my frustrations is with the Hebrew, you have ish and isha, male and female. And with the Greek, you have andros and gunaika, male and female. There's no husband and there's no wife in either of them. So it's an interesting thing when they say, well, it just doesn't matter if they two individuals who are in love and committed to each other, they can be joined together in marriage. No, they can't. You, there's no husband or wife. It's man and woman, male and female. In both languages, there's no word in Biblical Hebrew or Biblical Greek for a husband or wife. Now, our English Bibles translate that based on context to help us with that idea in our own thought process. But it's kind of an interesting thing to note. There's nothing, no such thing in the Hebrew or Greek, of at least the Biblical Hebrew and Greek, of, ma of man and wi or husband and wife. It's interesting. <laughs> Yes, biological, in her body, <laughs> which, <laughs> very much so, very much so. I, w I would keep running with that whole soapbox, but it would only lead to other problems for us. <laughs> we wouldn't get through our study one, and, and we, we'd probably have some issues with carnality as well. All right, let's go through um, Isha, the reference to a biological female. Um, I, I was under the impression and I'm going to mention this and let you deal with it as you will. I was under the impression that Isha meant of man. Uh, and I couldn't find in my notes where I got that impression or find in my dictionaries where I got that impression. So somewhere I had come across that before in a dictionary of a Hebrew term or word. Uh, I didn't see it in my search again once I looked at it. But we know we're talking about a biological female from this term. All right, the last word that's in bold. God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. This one is a fun word. It's temutan. Temutan means to cease to possess the necessary component for life. Now, we just dealt with the creation of man. And we had the body, which was 
had the capacity for life, but until the breath was put into it, wasn't a living being. So when you have temutin, the word for die, and you get to the definition that says it means to cease to possess the necessary component for life, and the dictionaries actually go and say breath, uh, at least a couple of them I saw already, you identify that with the, the creation of man and the ceasing or the dying of man, that there's a removal of the nismat, that necessary component for life. So this word die is temutin, and it means to cease to possess the necessary component for life. We have reference to, I almost put it in here, to Abram, or Abraham, I believe, maybe it's Moses, one of the two, breathing his last breath and dying. And it's the identifying that his last breath goes out and the final completion of death, which is the similar word to temut, and it's moot, uh, is completed once that last breath has left his body. So it's interesting distinction there. Now, there's a, a couple different forms of die in this verse, the next verse, and in the command of God back in chapter 2, which we will look at tonight, uh, so long as we have the time available to us. This form of die is an imperfect form. That means the action starts but is not completed. The focus is not that the action is in progress. The focus is on the, that the action hasn't finished yet. So if you read the imperfect with die, what Eve is saying is that you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die in a culminative act in the future. Well, that's interesting. So we'll deal with that when we get to the command of God. So it appears that Eve is a little bit uh, lacking in the whole command of God in a response to the serpent. All right, Genesis 3, 4 to 6. We have the serpent, Satan, saying to the woman, the biological female in the Garden of Eden, when she says that God says we cannot eat from it or touch it or we will die in a culminating act in the future, he says you surely will not die. But he uses a phrase, Mot temut, which is dying instantly in a complete act. You will die in a future act. Our future act is a little misleading in a future completion of the act. So we've got mat temut. Mat is the perfect, which means the act is complete. Dying instantly in a completed action of dying. You will die in a future completion of the act. Well, we've got two types of life. The serpent here is more exhaustive or complete in his statement than Eve was. Eve had the imperfect, dying in the future culminative completion of the act. But the servant says to the woman, you surely will not die. And this word die is actually two words in the Hebrew. Dying instantly, you will die in the future in a completed act. 
So there's two deaths mentioned. Now one of the things that Hebrew does, it's kind of a fun thing, is it can use the same word in the same form two or three times to stress emphasis. That's why we see the, the, the cherubim in the throne room of God saying, holy, holy, holy. They're emphasizing the holiness of God. You could say holy, and it tells us that God is holy, but you say holy, holy, and it stresses the emphasis more in Hebrew. But when you get to that third one, it's the utmost highest holiness. And so the emphasis is uh, greater there. But for that to be the case, for it to be an emphatic usage, you have to have the same word in the same form. So we would need mot mot to emphasize you will die. But we have mot temut. We have two different points in the timeline being referred to, an instant completed death and a future completed death. A death that starts but is culminated in the future. He already knew both deaths, which means he either heard God give the original command, because as we get to that command, we'll find that God says, dying instantly, you will die in the future, or... Prepared before the foundation of the earth, yep. Yep. So we have... Two deaths mentioned by dying, or dying you will die in the future by the serpent. So Satan says this, whether he heard God say the command or figured it out in his shrewdness. Um, my cur curiosity goes, well, what does, he, what does the woman do with that statement? She says, we're going to die at a point in time in the future if we touch it. And here the serpent says, no, you'll die instantly and a point in time in the future. Uh, just kind of interesting. But he's saying you're not going to die the way God says. You will, for God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. The Hebrew word for knowing here is yode'e, and it identifies the possession of information about something. It's yode'e, and it's the possession of information, or it's a participle, so it's possessing of information about something. I don't know why I'm writing that. I don't expect that you can read it. Uh, it's a little bit sloppy as it is and the glare on the board and the distance and all that stuff. <laughs> so uh, just an exercise for me, I suppose. Uh, God, he says, for in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God possessing of information, and the information that you're possessing is information that's good and information that's evil. We have two different words here. The word good is tob. It's used all throughout the creative act of God where he says, and it was good. It's tob. It's a fun word to say. It identifies something that's beneficial towards accomplishing an objective. We translate it as good. Uh, and that's, I guess, good. But the, there's a more thorough explanation for it. The thing is good because it's the proper tool to accomplish the objective it's designed for. So when we get man is good, what's man's purpose? To glorify God. God says, I've done this, and it is very good. This will accomplish the objective that I've designed it for, along with all the rest of the creative work. So Tob identifies that which is beneficial, towards accomplishing an objective, and its goodness comes out of it being beneficial. Now you have the opposite word, re, for evil. 
and it identifies that which is worthless towards accomplishing an objective. It may look like it's the right tool, but it's not. You may take your hammer and drive a nail, and take your hammer and put, try to drive a screw, but the hammer is not the proper tool to get it done. You might be able to do it. It's pretty tough, though. But it's not the proper one, so it's really worthless in that endeavor. That's a human analogy. It's a terrible one, but that's the one that comes to mind at the, at the drop of a hat. So good is Tobe. It's what's beneficial towards accomplishing an objective. Evil is Ray, and it's what's worthless towards accomplishing an objective. So when they eat from the fruit, Satan says, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, possessing information about what is beneficial towards accomplishing an objective and what is worthless towards accomplishing an objective. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes and was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. We have three different distinctions made here. She sees the fruit. As she observes the fruit, she recognizes the fruit is good for food. It's a delight to the eyes, and it's desirable to make one wise. Now, there's three things here. And when we take a look at 1 John 2, 16, we find that the world contains three things. And it operates in this area of, for us as fallen individuals, tempting us in three categories. And those categories that we can identify from there are sensuality, materialism, and pride. Let's flip over to that verse real quick. 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We identify the lust of the flesh from the Greek word sarks is the satisfaction of the internal feeling of the body through the senses. Let's see if I can get English to work here. Satisfaction of the internal feeling of the body. And this is accomplished through the senses. We will spend more time in this at a later or future date as we deal with the consequence of the fall and the possession of a sin nature. So when we look at the lust of the flesh, the phrase from the Greek is epithumios, uh, or epithumion sarks, and identifies the satisfaction of the internal feeling of the body through the senses. Uh, the, probably the simplest idea of this is comfort food. I love country fried steak, just good. Mashed potatoes, gravy, good. Just makes you feel good when you eat it. Makes your body feel good. Now, it may not make you feel good down the road, but at that time you eat it, it tastes good, it feels good internally. It satisfies the body uh, internally, and that's through the mouth. So the idea here is that there are different feelings the body produces, different desires, urges, cravings, that sort of thing that you satisfy through your senses. We call this sensuality but we do not want to confuse it with sexual behavior, although that would qualify, obviously. So we call it sensuality and refer to that as sensuality. 
Number two, we have the lust of the eyes. As the eyes take a look, they desire to consume material objects. We call this materialism. Epithumios, the word for lust here, is the desire to consume something for oneself. What the eyes can see, it desires to consume. And so the physical things that are visible to the eye, it the, the lust desires those things. So it's materialism there. The third category we have is the boastful pride of life. It's from Alizaniah. Uh, the Alizone is a person who has this idea. And it is one who is ego-oriented. Uh, Self-focused, the word Alizaniah identifies an, a mentality of an individual who values themselves, their experience, their feelings, their thoughts, um, anything related to self, that's the idea. So we've got sensuality, materialism, and egoism, or pride, for simplicity's sake. In 1 John 2.16, when he's talking about this area, he's identifying these are the things that get in the way of spiritual maturity, spiritual growth. And it says that all that is in the world, lust of the, the lust of the flesh, sensuality, the lust of the eyes, materialism, and the boastful pride of life, egoism or pride, is not from the Father, but is from the world. These things did not originate with God. They originated in the world system. And when we go back to our passage in Genesis chapter I should have left those up there for you, I suppose. Chapter 3, we identified those three areas and saw that it was good for food. What's that going to satisfy? The flesh. Good or delight to the eyes. The eyes see it and say, this is a desirable thing. So that's materialism. Desire to make one wise. What's the focus? The wisdom of self, which leads to that independent mentality. So these three areas in Genesis were already being functioned and functioning by, the sa by Satan and John wrote about it some couple thousand years later about all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. So you've got these three categories. A fun thing to do is go to in Matthew or the Gospels where Jesus is taken up uh, and is by the, the Holy Spirit in the wilderness for, three day, or for 40 days and comes back and he's hungry, turn these stones into bread and satisfy your flesh. Three temptations, three categories. We have a Savior who is tempted in every category that we are, yet remained righteous. Uh, so it's just a fun exercise to do as you go through and look at it. Uh, it pops up a couple other places elsewhere, but those are the three big ones. We'll probably bring those up again <coughs> in a few weeks. So we have these three areas that Eve sees. It's good for satisfaction of the flesh. It's good for possession, and it's good for making one wise or ego. Now she took from the fruit of the tree and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The word with is in the Hebrew. There are those who say that Adam was not with her, otherwise he would have stopped her. Apparently not. Yeah, perhaps, you know. <laughs> he, he was with her, but he was looking the other way. I don't know what the deal is. Then we, we really need to be careful trying to understand why didn't Adam step in if Eve was deceived and Adam ate knowingly how come he didn't stop her you know we don't know it's not revealed to us uh, there's been a lot of speculation as to well Eve was the perfect woman so Adam didn't want to be separated from her for eternity well I don't think that really floats although I guess humanly we can say it's plausible but we don't know so we just leave it with what we do know the text says that her husband was with her or the man was with her and he ate 
All right, Genesis 3, 7 and 9. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. First word we have there in the bold is opened. It's going to challenge my Hebrew phonics. It's tipe kano. That wasn't that bad, actually. Tipe kano, which means made able to perceive. Until then, they were little kitty cats, just born. They hadn't yet opened their eyes. No, I don't think that's what it's getting at, but it's kind of a fun little thing to throw in there. So the eyes of them were made able to perceive. What are they able to perceive? Well, now they are able to perceive the good and the bad. And what they perceived when they first opened their eyes, or perhaps one of the first things, is that they then knew that they were naked. The word here for knew means to know cognitively. As they perceive, they take a look at each other and go, hey, I'm not wearing clothes, you're not wearing clothes. They put the facts together and say, we are naked. It's not the Hebrew, that's the English. And that means physically naked. I, one time I looked at this, I was trying to see if there's any possibility for spiritually naked, you know, symbolism there. It's not. It's physically naked. It's all it is. Uh, the uncovering of the body physically. And as a result, and here's the context that harmonizes that, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Have you guys ever seen fig trees and leaves? I, I haven't. I haven't seen them, but what I've been told about them from a source I trust pretty well is that they're very scratchy. So I don't know if that was the case in the Garden of Eden or if that's a result of the fall and this, you know, fig, fig leaves were cursed because of this. I don't know. Who knows? But uh, it doesn't sound like from at least what we have in today's fig leaves, uh, from what I've been told, it doesn't seem like they would be very comfortable for loin coverings. So they finished their sewing project. They hear the Lord, the, s the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Again, Lord God is the same phrase we have. Elohim represented by the personal name. And so the personal name, we have a representative here, uh, which we harmonize out to be the son in this instance with his interaction. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The phrase cool of the day re refers to the time of day when the wind blows in. So it's after the heat comes up heats up the earth and then goes away so it's basically the afternoon early evening when that cold air starts coming in and wind starts coming back that's the Hebrew phrase cool of the day focuses on the wind there and it refers to that later part of the day which means they must have eaten the fruit at either lunch or breakfast take your pick I'll leave out the part about the apple um, <laughs> so the Lord, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Walking is used here as the idea of stepping foot, foot by foot along the path. So we have what we would understand as God the Son in the garden in some form, probably and most likely human, something that's visible. And it says that the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Now that word presence is pene. And it refers to the front part of the head where the main senses for perception and speech are. So, they're doing one of those things that Bugs Bunny would do with, was the Elmer Fudd. Elmer Fudd's looking this way. Bugs Bunny's right behind him, on top of his head maybe. And his Elmer Fudd turns his head this way. They turn their head the other way. Goes a different direction. Pene, the front part of the head where the main senses for perception and speech are. 
So they are hiding themselves from him being visibly able to see him, see them. Now, the next phrase in bold is, where are you? It's the question that is asked by the Lord God who calls the man and says to him, where are you? But the Hebrew is literally, why are you where you are? It's not that the Son of God or the Lord God did not know where they were. He is omniscient. He is omniscient. He knew long before they were put in the garden what they would do, where they would be in this moment. The Hebrew phrase is literally, why are you where you are? Which leads us to verses 10 and 11. No words in bold, because they pretty well speak for themselves. We could pick it apart if we wanted to. But 10 to 11 say, he said, and this is the man, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself, and he, this is the Lord God, says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of, the, of which I command you not to eat? And we drop the curtain at that part of Act 1, because clearly it's rhetorical. He knows that they've eaten. He knew they would eat, and he is asking the rhetorical question to get into the next part of the phase. So we have the fall of man which leads to what we need to identify as far as the death. In Genesis 2.17, God identifies to Adam, the man. He gives him the commission he, of the garden to protect it, to take care of it, to grow it, to maintain it. And he says, but you may eat of all the trees of the, of the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. That phrase in bold is what we want to look at. You will surely die. It's from the Hebrew phrase, mot temut, which means literally dying, you will die. And here's what we were getting at with the serpent who said that this would not happen. The first one on our list is mot, and it's perfect tense. It identifies an action which is, or which is complete, excuse me, an action which is complete. So there is an instant, completed death that God says will happen when they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then we look at the second word, temut, which is in the imperfect tense, and it's an action which is incomplete. It identifies an, act an action which starts but has not finished. So we have, for simplistic terms, a decayed action or decaying action, an action that's occurring pending its completion. Now, our literal recognition, just adding these in here and harmonizing out, because uh, we know Adam and Eve didn't die physically right there. So we've got only two different, two, two types of death, soul death or spiritual death. So we've got to identify which one's, phys or which one's instant and which one's future. So as we put those in, and I've got them in brackets to identify that we've added those in, we find Genesis 2.17 to read, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you are commanded not to eat, for in the day that you eat from it, dying spiritually in a complete action, you will die physically in an action which completes in the future. Now, physical death is a separation of the body, or the soul from the body, where the body, uh, the temporary house of the soul, loses the soul and cannot function on its own anymore. So the death that is the result of the fall that's instant is spiritual. The death that goes on and, can, and culminates in the future is physical, the separation of the soul from the body. So we've got a little diagram for you. Pre-fall Adam. Blue is symbolic of righteousness. The body is in blue, and in the body and the head, I've got the soul, and I've got the human spirit. What 
happened when they ate was sin entered in. So we've got red, which identifies the sin, and thus the need for blood to be shed. And we have the death of the human spirit, so the removal of the breath or the necessary component of life in the human spirit. And that means now that there is no living human spirit, but we know that the body contains the capacity for spiritual life, but without that necessary spark, it doesn't have that spiritual life. And so the death then leads to a post-fall Adam who is lacking in a part of his design because he does not have a functioning human spirit that is a living human spirit, but because he has a body, he has the capacity for spiritual life, but no, no living life of the, of the human spirit. There's a couple of analogies that I've worked with in the past, both of which I've kind of walked away from, but I'll bring them up just to create some similarities. The worst one of the two that I've used is a cup. We can use this water bottle as the idea. Uh, I have a drink here because I have water inside a vessel. If I don't have the liquid inside the vessel, I just have a cup. I have no drink. I've got the ability to have or the capacity to have a drink if I were to fill it up with something. But if you take all that out, I don't have a drink. I just have a cup. And it's a simplistic analogy, but it's not very good. Uh, perhaps a, a better one, although, again, any human analogy is not going to be as good as the Word of God itself, uh, is a balloon idea where the balloon is the capacity for spiritual or, or soul life. And when the breath is blown in there, that's why we did it, breath is blown in there, it inflates the balloon, now you have a living balloon. There's, you can see where the problem falls into that one as well. Uh, if you want to use helium or some gas that's lighter than air, then you've got a balloon that's actually animate. You can kind of, it's not really animate, but that's the idea. So you can see why I've walked away from those pretty well. We've got the blood that has the capacity for life, and we have the nefesh, which is the capacity for life, the nismat, which is needed to, the necessary component for life, and so we've got the death of the human spirit with post-fall Adam. And now we consequently, without getting too much ahead, each of us born spiritually dead are already in a fallen state as a result of the lack of life in the spirit. Any questions on our lesson this evening? We've reached the end. We've gotten done right about on time. Any questions? 